Welcome to Heritage Tree, where we talk about heritage care and development for people and organizations. And now to our host, Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe. So once upon a time, my son and I were on one of our many hikes and we were walking through a wetland area and saw this mother duck with her baby ducklings. Now she was feeding them and taking good care of them and very attentive mother duck. Well, there was this posse of guy ducks over not so far away from her, maybe a few yards away, and they saw her and what she was doing, and they would come over and harass her. They would take a peck. They would try to get the food she was feeding to her kids. And then she would use her mom energy to ward them off, to chase them away. And then she would come back and feed her ducklings, and this went on for a good, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes or so until she was done feeding her ducklings. And then they got in the water and swam away. And I thought, my goodness, isn't that, ain't that the truth? You know, mom's minding her own business, using her energy, expending her resources to help her young, her offspring. And along comes, in this case, a few dudes to harass her, to pick on her, to try to take what she has. And she has to expend her mom energy I joke in other podcasts that this is a mom energy. Momming is a almost a rule of a conservation of energy, some unknown rule in physics that people have not yet <laughs> discovered, but women live through every day who are mothers and identify themselves as such. So here we have this scenario. Well, many metaphors could be pulled out in the terms for heritage care and formation for people and organizations. What kind of cultures and families, what kind of societies and groups, what kind of practices are we building or perpetuating or doing? Maybe also without any thought, without noticing if it's hurting somebody, but that are hard on primary caregivers. In this case, it doesn't necessarily have to be a mother figure. It could be a father figure. It could be a mother or father figure who are forever parents who have adopted their children. And by the way, forever parents is any parent. <laughs> and it could be a caregiver of a, of a elderly person, a child of that person or a sibling of that person or a spouse of that person who is needing extra care, whose medical needs or basic needs are such that they are dependent on this other person to help them out. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it really stings to, it really pinches to need to depend on someone. And we often might think of that in our society, in American culture, that esteems individualism and do it yourself and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and don't tread on me in this rough and tough bravado. We might not like, we might shirk at this idea that we need others. And so when we look at those kind of scenarios, we think, oh, that's out of form, that's out of norm, that's margins, that's not every day, that's not us, that's not how things, and we make the mistake of concluding should be. But right now I want to pause, and before this gets too off rails, to pray. As always, let's pray. 
Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about you and your care of us as your people. Please help us receive that better and trust you more in our lives with your care of us so that we can have more margins to care for one another. And I thank you for this moment in time and history to talk and think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we look through, going to scripture here, the scriptures in Zechariah 12, it says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now we know in the other prophets, especially when you read through the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the suffering that the people of God were going to go through and going through all of the suffering foretold and the suffering that the prophets would endure at the hands of wrathful people when they would hear these prophecies and indictments about their sins, which as described in those prophets were often sins of injustice, ill-gotten gain of wealth and position through the shedding of blood of innocence is how often those scriptures would describe the reason for an angry God. Now, it's not popular to talk about the wrath of God and certainly not popular to talk about sin, repentance, damnation, or hell. In fact, when you hear those words, you might think of, in your mind, someone that you know of or a televangelist or someone on a street corner or in a town square preaching that with some kind of wooden sandwich board and telling people they're going to go to hell and repent. So, in a way, you can kind of understand why the people really did not like what these prophets would say about how God was angry at them for what they were doing. But it was a little more than that, because God was very precise. He would repeat this message many times through different people, and these prophets suffered enormously. Ezekiel lost his wife, and Isaiah, they sawed him in two. It talks about that in Hebrews. And also, if you're new to this podcast and new to my work, I do keep it real. I do focus on what the Word does say and what happened in human history and what is happening now and what hope we have as a gospel heritage, what vision we have for kingdom come and why that hope and why that vision is so important. It's so powerful because of the reality of suffering. God would say to these prophets, when you read in Jeremiah, he would talk about the murder of innocents, also in Ezekiel, how the people would adopt the practices of the surrounding nations, but they would make them even worse. They would level up. So rather than level up their faith in their God and keep this, if you read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and even Deuteronomy too, it almost seems tedious because it's as though it's reading through a law. Exodus, not so much. There's there's a lot of story in there about the quest that the people were on. We'll put it that way in a positive way, wandering in the wilderness. But, and also wandering in the wilderness after their slavery, by the way, which is important, that this constant thread of economic abuse happens throughout the what Christians often refer to as the Old Testament or the Jewish Tanakh, the older scriptures that were pre-Jesus. So pre the birth of Jesus, you have all these scriptures, and it's 
effectively about two-thirds of the Bible, really. Um, and so that history is really important to understand why we needed Jesus and what is this about the wrath of God. And honestly, if you're going through a hard time and you're reading through, as I was, <laughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it was hard to almost slug through those scriptures and read these indictments and read you know, God would say, well, I'm going to one of you. This is going to happen to you because you did this to others. It will happen to you. And on the surface, it seems, okay, God is wrathful. He has given his reasons for that. These reasons do seem just. And what is the solution he's offering, which is, I'm going to take revenge on you. Um, I had to pause and, and think through that. And it really did seem as though it was an effort to teach them empathy, to teach them mirroring that they did not have. So just hold on to that for a moment as a possibility. So that's not all that he said, and that's not how it all ended, because you would have these little gems, as my grandma would call them, such as in Isaiah, and you would have these little promises that God would make. In Ezekiel, he uses the metaphor of the tree a lot and of a branch, and every single time you hear a metaphor in these older scriptures, is what I prefer to call them, <laughs> these more ancient texts, when you read about Jesus in the newer scriptures, in the epistles or in the gospels, when these metaphors are given, when Jesus is speaking in parables, my interpretation is it's not just to be culturally relevant. And also I, we've discussed in this course often in my teachings, we talk about the parasympathetic nervous system and the central nervous system and how we stray in the anger and the fear and the strife away from the rest and digest and imagination that we need, that God made us to need to be healthy and calm and at rest and well-balanced in life. Our vestibular system is connected to all of that. It's very, I want to say intricate, not delicate, but intricate and complex our eyes, our ears, our neck, our spine, for instance, use they work together with our brain to affect our balance and to teach us there are our gyroscope, if you will, there are system that tells us where we are going and what we are doing, and it's constantly making these calculations and it's amazing. When we feel anxious or heightened arousal, when we are not regulating or seeing a state of calm, of breath, we can really lose balance and our vision can become so myopic, so narrow, that it's very difficult to imagine possibilities or even be in a state of gratitude or affection or cherishing, all of those things, gratitude and affection. You know, gratitude is the basis of cherishing, I say in my books, and I often teach this in my coaching and e-course, and appreciation is important to having a, a mindset of fighting what our natural tendency is, is to get into these ruts of finding problems. In my story about the ducks, which happened, by the way, you see this, I would interpret as a problem of disparity, of advantage, you might say. She had responsibility. She was expending her energy, and there were at least six or seven chicks, ducks that were ducklings 
rather, that were relying on her. And these guys over here, they had each other, but they didn't have someone relying on them for their survival. They, they were of enough capacity and enough body weight that they could last a few more days maybe. And they could certainly have enough skill because they once had a mama duck too that had taught them how to forage. So maybe they dismissed their mama, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm reading it wrong. But you have this sense of, that's unjust. Even in the natural world, that, that's not really right. I mean, come on. And then as a mother myself, we could say we've gone through some things. If you know of a mom, she's probably gone through some things. And, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to be an appreciative influence? Are you going to give her a compliment? If you want to criticize her, be sure to drop her a 20 spot also, <laughs> at least. $20 bill, that's the, that's the flat, like the minimum wage of insulting or criticizing a mom. Just saying, you know, we're going to carry around a tip jar. We get enough of it as it is. There's enough pressure to be invisible in our society, to do it ourselves, to, to enjoy the flogging that society gives to mothers of children that... If you want to read through the scriptures, even in Revelation 12, it talks about the dragon of Satan pursuing the mother while she's in childbirth. And the realm of nature helps her. The trees and everything give her a safe place for four and some odd years. And he skulks away because he was injured and by her, but her offspring would finish it later right and this was a prophecy in in genesis about to eve that that her offspring would crush his head serpent's head with his heel so while we have an enemy who is doing unjust things in the world who is getting us out of the system that god had made that is taking away the margins that we need to thrive and survive that's a confusing, destabilizing, unfair, de-energizing, vampiring almost, influence. We have this whole milieu in scriptures. So back to the wrath of God in the prophets, the major prophets. When you're reading through those, what would you say would be love? Would you say love is just all the time for everybody. And if there's any deficit of anything, it's a deficit of love. That's a big question. What if for someone to love you, they also need to protect you? If that mama duck just let those guys peck on her and peck on her babies and that would not be love. Now, I'm stretching this metaphor you see <laughs> bear with me if you know someone you love is out riding their bike or playing in the street or and you see a car come do you just ignore it and let them get hurt or because you have love you say something love is protective what if anger is trying to protect something we're not even at the question yet whether or not it's right or wrong what that anger is protecting what if that anger, that wrath, is attempting to protect someone? It's a defense. 
we might say defense mechanism, but that's too much. <laughs> Let's just keep it as simple as we can. What if anger is trying to protect something? So when I feel angry or you feel angry or you see somebody angry that you care about or you're trying to have a conversation about something important, you want to come to some kind of understanding or common ground and they are angry. They get angry and they react at you and it's almost like they're not even talking to you anymore. It displaces you and it and it certainly goes off into the bush <laughs> away from the topic at hand. You know, it's not even a question about how we would de-escalate that. With my coaching clients, we do. We prepare with counter messages for worry or for anger. Things, any kind of spiritual or emotional or practical roadblocks that are in their lives that are preventing them from this this work of heritage care or this work of developing their vocation in their life and finding that integration, finding that sense of orderliness and peace. You know, we work on that. But for this conversation, it's is it okay for someone to be angry if someone gets hurt or is doing something that hurts someone? So this anger is a righteous anger. It's about, then we would say, justice. So telling someone to calm down or not be angry, or this happens a lot to women, you're supposed to smile, otherwise you look angry. It's, it's a common thing in politics when one election was notorious for bringing this out, that the person's not smiling, a woman in particular who is not smiling, therefore she must be angry. <laughs> yes, you must also accept this flogging and this trolling or scoffing or this pecking order we've imposed on you and be happy about it. You're supposed to smile. One of my favorite shows, I Love Lucy, and there's a lot to say about that too, but there's one episode where she and Ethel were making a home movie and they were dressed up as cowboys and she said she insulted Ethel and she said, smile when you say that. <laughs> and so she stood up and tried to smile with her fake cigarette in her mouth and said it again. And it's a very funny phrase. And it's very apropos for women in our society that there's this image of happy motherhood, for instance, that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to be invisible, and whatever we show, it's only the highlight reels. And I talk about this often in my coaching, in my e-courses, in my books, and previous episodes about how women are more or less asked to do a lot but not show where it hurts. And I want to ask you, where can empathy be found in that? Where empathy needs to notice a suffering. It needs to experience or share in solidarity of that. And I want to encourage you and pause for a moment to give you a vision forward before we wrap up for this episode that Hebrews talks about Jesus as the empathetic high priest. And it's his core message to his identity as a son of man and son of God. We elaborate on this in the e-courses and in previous episodes, and especially in book two of the Kingdom Come trilogy, the green book, as my readers affectionately call it. But his identity as empathetic high priest is monumental. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, tip us at the link below and inquire, subscribe, and shop our merchandise label 
of Heritage Tree and Heritage at dinamichellerosco.com and dogwoodgroup.io. Come back again when we gather around the Heritage Tree. <laughs>